how God was seeking a bride for his son. Each book is different from every other book. I'm trying to give you the keys for you to unlock it for yourself. You're listening to Unlocking the Bible by David Pawson. Visual materials featured in this talk can be found online at davidpawson.org. This is Isaiah part two. Bearing in mind that Isaiah is a collection of different prophecies made over 40 years, it it is not very ordered. Nevertheless, uh, I think it's important to get the shape of it and the feel of it. So let's look first at part one. Most of it is bad news, as I've already told you. Chapters one to ten are a reproof for Judah and particularly Jerusalem and particularly the women of Jerusalem with all their finery. They were spending an awful lot of money on uh, jewellery and uh, that's just a picture of some that has been excavated from Jerusalem from that time. So I don't know if you think it's very attractive or not, but it was pretty expensive stuff and the women were spending a lot of money on it. Um, Then in chapters 13 to 23, that blue line there, there was a little section about judgment on other nations, nations that God has used to discipline his people but who overstepped God's permission in what they did and who in fact uh, became malicious and cruel and did more to Israel than God intended them to do and he will punish them for that. He does use other nations to discipline his people but if they overstep the mark, and power goes to their heads, I'm afraid he deals with it. Chapters 24 to 34, uh, judgment on Samaria, the northern tribes, and judgment on Judah. But I want you to notice that he slips in two sections that are good news. And so there's a kind of sandwich of bad news, good news, bad news, good news, and then bad news again in that first part. The coming glory is described twice so that it isn't so heavy that people don't get a little glimpse of a brighter future. Chapters 36 to 39, as I've told you, are narrative of King Hezekiah's illness and are really a transitional story, a bit of history, to show how Assyria gave way to Babylon as the main threat through Hezekiah's foolishness in welcoming that man from Babylon, which was not a world power at that stage, but showed him everything and rather boasted of all the treasures in Jerusalem. So we have both bad news and good news in the first half. The bad news is very similar to Amos, the disobedience of the people, the discipline that God has tried to use to bring them back to himself by bringing surrounding nations against them, the disaster that is certain to come and ultimate exile and dejection. They are going to be rejected as God's people and will finish up in deep depression, taken away. But the good news of part one is that from the exile a remnant will return. That's Isaiah's son's name, you remember, second son. And then comes the great good news down here, very important, In the first half of Isaiah is the news of a king and the government shall be on his shoulder. A king is to be born who will bring peace to the nations. And you have uh, all the beginning of Handel's Messiah 
in that first part. Now I want you to hold that in your minds, this coming reign of a king like David who would be an everlasting father, counsellor, prince of peace, with the government on his shoulder, born of a virgin. All that is in that first half and it's a picture of a coming king who would reign again in Israel. And of course that leads to a great note of rejoicing. There's a lot of happiness in Isaiah, a lot of celebration, even in that first part. But now we're going to come to the second part and look at that. And here we have an incredibly wonderful picture of God all the way through. And I just wrote down some of the things that the second half says about God. Number one, he's the only God there is and this is tremendously important in the second half of Isaiah. There is none beside me. There is none like me. I am the only God there is. That's a very important point. All the other gods don't exist. And in fact, Isaiah mocks the other gods. He says, They have ears but they can't hear, they have eyes but they can't see, they have feet but they can't walk. I thought of that passage when I visited the temple of a thousand Buddhas in Bangkok in Thailand. They have feet but they can't walk. There are no other gods beside me. That, of course, is a profoundly offensive statement in our modern world where everybody wants us to accept all religions. There is no God beside the God of Israel. He is secondly the almighty creator. The nations are as a drop in the bucket or dust on the scales. He names the stars. Man, of course, was never intended to name the stars. We've got into awful trouble since we gave names to the stars. I don't know the sign of the zodiac I was born under and I'm not going to give you my birthday's date because I don't want to know. I'd rather remain ignorant. But since man named the stars, we've been in all kinds of trouble. Six out of ten men and seven out of ten women read their horoscope every day. Isaiah says God calls the stars by name. We name the animals and whatever is under our authority, but we step out of our sphere when we give names to stars. We become astrologers. It's all there. Then there's the favourite description of God, the Holy One of Israel all the way through part two. Then he is called the kinsman redeemer of his people. We know what that means from the book of Ruth. He's called the saviour of the nations and above all, he is the God of history. This word nations, in Greek it's ta ethne from which we get ethnic groups and it doesn't refer to political states, it refers to ethnic groups. Jesus told us to go and make disciples of all ethnic groups, not just all political states. That's an important point. So there's an awful lot about God in this second half, but there's also someone else appears in this second half in a series of songs, they're called, because they're very poetic. And it's about a servant of God. And to this day, the Jews don't know who it is. And this mysterious figure appears in the second half only, behold my servant. At times it almost seems to be the whole people of Israel and then it becomes clearly an individual. So it's a bit complicated because the title servant is given to others 
Uzziah is called the servant of the Lord. Hezekiah is called the servant of the Lord. Josiah is. Jeremiah is. Ezekiel. But there's something about this servant that is different. Four things, in fact. First of all, his faultless character. This servant is perfect. He has no faults, no sins. That can't be applied to any of the others. Secondly, he is a deeply unhappy man, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, deeply unhappy. Thirdly, he goes through an execution death. He is killed as a criminal and yet it says he was sinless. He is killed for the sins of others but not his own. He is accused falsely and his grave is with the rich. And then above all, this servant, after he has been killed for the sins of others, is raised from the dead and exalted to a very high position. Well now to us it's no mystery, is it? But to the Jew it is. See? They can't fit this servant in the second half with the promised king in the first half. It doesn't make sense. and We must try and sympathetically understand the problem Jews have with this. Isaiah himself didn't make the connection and didn't realise that this servant he was talking about in the second part was in fact the same person as the king he was talking about in the first half. See? The first Jew to make the connection between these two was Jesus and the connection came at his baptism and when God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, God was putting together something said about the king, this is my beloved son, and something said about the servant in whom I am well pleased. So actually it was God who first made the connection at the baptism of Jesus and Jesus knew he was to combine those two figures in one. But to the Jews to this day, they still think of it as two different people and they debate who is this servant. Isn't it fascinating that in the very year that Israel became a political state again, they discovered the entire scroll of Israel in the Dead Sea Scrolls. And it's in the most amazing museum, the Shrine of the Book, right near the Knesset. If you go, you can go and see it. And it's Isaiah that's on display and there it is, the suffering servant is on display at the heart of modern Israel and they still don't know who it is. Isn't that tragic? Not only did Jesus make the connection, Peter made it again and again in his preaching in the book of Acts, Peter makes the connection between the king and the servant. That's why many priests became Christians in the early days because they saw it, they knew Isaiah. Philip made the connection. Do you remember when he met the Ethiopian eunuch in the chariot? And the Ethiopian eunuch was interested in the Jewish God and he was reading the prophet Isaiah. He was reading Isaiah 53 and he said, who is this about? He'd been asking people up in Jerusalem, they couldn't tell him who it was about. So he said, do you know who this is about? And Philip said, yes, I do, his name's Jesus. And beginning at that same scripture, 
he preached Jesus to him. It wasn't long before he was baptized. First African to become a believer in Jesus. Took the gospel back to Ethiopia. And he was the chancellor of the exchequer. Was the queen of Ethiopia. Paul made the connection supremely. When you read Philippians, he talks about the one who was thought it not robbery to be equal with God. It took the form of a servant. See? Now this is the great secret that we understand but which the Jews don't. They somehow can't feel that a king could suffer like that and be put to death as a common criminal. It's a real blockage. The cross is an offence to the Jewish people. That's not the kind of king they want nailed to a cross. That doesn't look like the king with the government on his shoulder. They are looking for a victorious king to come and reign, not to die. You see the problem. Now there's one other person who is very prominent in the second half of Isaiah and that's the Holy Spirit. Very, very prominent. This is where we get the phrase grieving the Holy Spirit but the Holy Spirit is all the way through and the Spirit anoints this servant for his task. And God's Holy Spirit is very prominent. Some very precious passages. I will pour out my Spirit on your offspring. That comes from the second part of Isaiah. You have rebelled and grieved His Holy Spirit. But the favourite phrase is the Spirit is going to be poured out, poured out, poured out. Once again, we know what that's referring to. It's Pentecost. But you see how the Trinity is so clear in the second half of Isaiah. And this explains the us in Isaiah 6. Whom shall I send and who will go for us? Trinity's there in the Old Testament. Not clear, but to those with eyes to see. Here is the mighty God who created the world. Here is his suffering servant. And here is the Holy Spirit. All three persons are utterly clear in this second half. Now I want to explain something about prophecy. Now, that looks a bit complicated. It's meant to be a human eye at that end and that's meant to be a telescope. You must excuse my artwork, it gets even worse when we get to Daniel. <laughs> and this is what you see when you look through the telescope. Now, you see, when you read prophecy, which is a third of the Bible, from Isaiah to Malachi, uh, there are 16 altogether. The big ones are always put first, so they're called the major prophets because they said a lot, or at least we've got a record of a lot. And the little ones are put next, and they're called minor prophets because they're little ones, much easier to read because they're shorter. But all of them looked beyond their own age. They used, as it were, two instruments. They used a microscope on the present and a telescope on the future. And the microscope, they really could see what was going on, really going on in their own nation. And so they would use the microscope on their own nation, but then they would look ahead into the future and they would see through a telescope. But now comes the complication. If you are looking at two mountain peaks through a telescope, you cannot see the distance between them. And in fact, if it's against a light sky and it's late in the day, we'll say, 
you could almost think you were looking at one mountain with two peaks. Do you follow me? And the same kind of limitation is on prophecy and what many of the Old Testament prophets thought was a mountain with two peaks was in fact two mountains spaced far apart. And so, for example, in the second, here's the person looking through the telescope, he's looking actually at two peaks, but he sees them as a mountain with one peak and doesn't realise that there's a lot of time or a lot of space rather in between the two peaks or in terms of prophecy, a lot of time between these two events. We live between the two peaks and one peak is past in our time and the other peak is future because we know something the prophets didn't know. They looked for the coming of the king. We know that the king is coming twice. That's the great mystery of the kingdom which Jesus revealed. And therefore the coming of the king is divided between two events. There is a double fulfilment of Isaiah's prophecy of this coming figure. Now not only is there a double fulfilment in the first coming of the king and then the second coming of the king, there's something even more complicated and that is that Isaiah's visions are in fact going to be reversed and that the suffering servant of the second part of Isaiah will happen before the reigning king of the first part. Now again, I want you to sympathise with the Jews. They know Isaiah, they know very well and they are looking for the first coming to be the king. But it hasn't happened that way. That's why they didn't recognise Jesus as their Messiah. Do you understand? They were looking for the king first. We know because the Holy Spirit has taught us that he was coming first as the suffering servant and would only come again later to be the king to rule the world. Can you see that? So there are two complications for the Jew reading Old Testament prophecy. One is that they only see one coming of the king, a mountain with two peaks to it, and don't realise it's two peaks separated by quite a distance in time. And the second is that they expect this, the first thing to happen first, but in fact God has revealed he's reversed the two. And Jesus had to come and die for our sins first before he could reign as king. And there's a lot to happen between those two comings, a lot for us to do to get ready for the king to reign. Now those are the two switches which we can grasp because we started with Christ. It's very difficult for Jews to handle this. This is the great mystery of the prophecy of Isaiah. The servant who suffers and the king who reigns are one and the same but he must first come as the servant before he can come as the king. And the reason for that is very simple because the Jews are their own worst enemies. They think they need to be saved from their enemies around them. They actually need to be saved from the enemy within. 
it's so easy to assume your troubles are due to others but in fact the real problem was their own sin. And this explains a whole lot in the Gospel story. You see, when John the Baptist announced, prepare the way of the Lord, repent, the kingdom's at hand, it's very near, get ready, get in that river and get cleaned up, confess your sins, get baptised. What is he saying? He's saying, you think you're ready for the king, you're not. You're sinful subjects. You're not clean enough to live in the kingdom. The same thing when Jesus came, he said, repent and believe for the kingdom is at hand. Now this explains Palm Sunday very well indeed. On Palm Sunday, Jesus rode into Jerusalem at last. He was doing what the people wanted. He was coming in as king and the crowds went wild with excitement. They really thought he was the king and this comes out in everything they shouted. They were shouting, Hoshana, 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 and that is not a kind of heavenly hello. That's what it's become in choruses today, sing Hosanna. Hoshana means liberate us now, set us free now. And he rode up. They didn't notice he was riding on a donkey. See, the second time he comes, he'll ride on a horse, and that's very different but he was riding on a donkey, he was saying, I haven't come to fight. You ride a horse when you fight. When he comes the second time, Jesus will fight. He comes as a man of war on a horse, a white horse, but he came on a donkey that time. They didn't notice the donkey and they, they threw their coats down, they waved palm branches and they shouted, Son of David, Son of David. They really thought he was coming to fulfil the first part of Isaiah. And then he came through the gate and he turned left instead of right. And the crowd went silent. He saw a man with a whip and said, give me that whip. They thought, is he going to do it? But no, he turned left instead of right. Now you've got to go to Jerusalem to understand the significance of that. On the right was the Roman fortress Antonio, where the Roman occupying forces were. Instead, Jesus turned left into the temple and whipped Jews. Now you can imagine why a few days later the same crowd said crucify him and why they chose Jesus Barabbas instead. A guerrilla fighter called Jesus Barabbas, which means saviour son of the Father, but he was a guerrilla fighter. They said, that's the kind of man we want, a man who's going to fight but a man who whips Jews out of the temple. Uh-uh. Can you see the crisis? They thought he was coming to take the throne and all he did was clean up the temple. How very disappointing. So that when Pilate put the plaque above the head as of the dying criminal, this is the king of the Jews, they couldn't believe it. Only one man in that whole nation believed it. And he said, Lord, remember me when you get your kingdom. He saw in the suffering, dying man the coming king. He was the only one who did. That dying thief has earned a place in history because he was the only one who believed it. Do you see how Isaiah saw it all and yet didn't realise what he saw and couldn't put it together? We can put it together now. We know that one day he will come on a horse and take over the governments of the world and reign here. He's going to be the King of England and the King of America and China and Russia. 
Jesus is going to reign and the kingdoms of this world will become the kingdom of our God and of his Christ. You can whisper hallelujah if you like. (laughs) I mean, that's great news. But he had to come first because nobody was really ready to live under his government. You can have a perfect king, but if he doesn't have good subjects, there can't be a kingdom. The Jews in their pride thought they were all ready for the king to come and liberate them and reign. And the message of John the Baptist was, you're not ready, you need to be cleaned up. And actually what we're doing now is getting people ready for the king to come and reign. We're preparing subjects all over the world of all nations now so that he can come back and when the good news is preached to all the nations, then shall the end come because God wants all ethnic groups represented. And that is why the ultimate future in the second part of Isaiah combines the national with the international. it, It seems if he's constantly switching in the last chapters from the future of Jerusalem to the future of the nations. Jerusalem, nations, Jerusalem, nations. And this, of course, is the wonderful passage which was you find in Isaiah 4 about in the latter days the mountain of the house the Lord will be established, the house the Lord will be established on the mountains and all the nations will come. You know, when I went to the United Nations in New York, I wanted to see two things. I wanted to see this block of granite outside that said they will beat their swords into plowshares. And there it says Isaiah 4. And I thought that's good to have a Bible verse outside. Would to God it was the whole verse that he will judge between the nations. You know, when Jesus reigns, justice will be done and you can't have just peace without justice. And only then can you have multilateral disarmament safely when all the nations acknowledge one arbiter of disputes. There'll come a day when Yugoslavia and all the problems of it will be given to Jesus to decide. See? Not an American and a British, but given to Jesus to settle. Can you imagine what will happen to the world when a dispute like that, Bosnia and Croatia, Jesus, what's the right thing to do? And he's the only one who could sort out a problem like that. One day he will. Well, I went all around the United Nations Security Council, General Assembly room, and uh, afterwards when we'd finished the tour, the girl said, well, that's the end of our tour, have a nice day. (laughs) And I said, but you haven't shown us one room. And she said, what room is that? I described it for her. Oh, she said, the public are not allowed in that room. I said, but I want to see it. I've come a very long way to see that room. I do want to see it. And she said, well, I'm sorry, you can't get in. And I I put on my most woe-begone expression, my spaniel look, you know, and I, I, I said, I'd love to see it. And she said, well, if you go to the security guards at the reception area, they might let you in. So I went to the security guards armed with guns at the entrance there and I said, "Uh, I would like to see in a certain room. And they said, oh no, that's not open. I said, but I I really would like to see it. I said, I've heard about it and uh, I really would like to see it because what I'd heard, I could not believe. And finally one of them relented and he got a key and he said, how long do you want to be in there? I said, two minutes is enough. All right, he said, I'll let you look in for two minutes. So we walked across the reception area. He unlocked a door. We went into a room much smaller than this, kind of wedge-shaped room with no windows, but a kind of hidden light around the edge of the ceiling that gave a rather gloomy, dim appearance. And in the middle 
was the God of the United Nations. Now I'd heard about this, I couldn't believe it. It is a block of cast iron about the size and shape of a coffin and it is painted matte black and there are stools and prayer mats all around it so you can pray to this block of cast iron. I couldn't believe it. If you've seen the film 2001, you've seen that block floating through from one planet to another. There it is. Do you know how it got there? When the United Nations building was completed, they had the biggest debate they've ever had because the General Secretary said, there's no prayer room, let's build a prayer room and they managed to squeeze this wedge-shaped space between two wings and make a little prayer room. And then the debate took place, what do we put in it? Many wanted a cross but uh, many wouldn't have that. Some wanted flowers but the others didn't want that. So finally somebody had the brilliant idea of creating this iron block and painting it matte black so you kind of look into it so that you can imagine any god you like in there. And you kneel in front of the block of cast iron and you pray to it for world peace. I just couldn't believe it but I've seen it with my own eyes. And they think they can get people to beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks by playing to a block of cast iron. Listen, that building's in the wrong place for a start. It's when the Lord reigns in Zion and when he settles disputes between the nations, then we can afford multilateral disarmament and spend all the money we're spending on guns and tanks, on food and clothes and things that people really need. Does that grab you as a vision? Listen, that's what Isaiah is predicting for the ultimate future. It's a future for a United Nations but it is centred on Jerusalem. I wonder if you really believe that because that's my hope for the future. Isaiah predicts it and I believe it's going to happen. The suffering servant phase has happened, it's passed to us. The reigning king has not yet happened, that's still future. But as certainly as one prophecy was fulfilled, the other is bound to be. And it all comes out of Isaiah. It's it's a world future. This is the hope for everybody in Isaiah. So why do we read Isaiah and study it? I'll give you six reasons. Number one, because it's part of God's Word. (laughs) That's the first good reason for reading and studying it. All Scripture is able to make us wise unto salvation but in Isaiah the key words are save and salvation which is of course his name. Yes, a Yahoo, God saves, Mr. God save the prophet and so that's the first reason. Secondly, here we have a very good introduction to the whole Bible, to the Old Testament and to the New. It is a summary of all the themes of both brought into one book amazingly by the Spirit's inspiration. Most of the Bible themes are all here. It's a Bible in miniature. So if you think the Bible's too big a book for you to read through, though I hope you all will, read Isaiah for a start and it will introduce you to all the themes of Scripture. You'll find them all here somewhere. Quite astonishing. Thirdly, It is a very good introduction to prophecy in particular, one of the three major prophets. It's put first in the section of the prophets in our Bible and a third of our Bible is prophecy. And prophecy, I would say, is a combination of protest and prediction. 
It's protest about the present and prediction about the future. They seemed to put their fingers on those two things again and again. So they were not just protesters, they were predictors, and they were not just predictors, they were protesters. And it's a combination of those two things. Fourthly, Isaiah helps you to link the Old and the New Testament by showing you how they illuminate each other. And it actually helps us to understand the New Testament to know Isaiah. It's a way into the New Testament and it links the two Testaments in God's eternal purpose in a beautiful way. Remember, this was the scripture that Jesus and Paul dwelt on most of all. Fifthly, to know Jesus. You see, he said, search the scriptures for they bear testimony to me and he's talking about the Old Testament and I think Isaiah helps you to understand the Lord better than any other. Just read through Isaiah 53. You're at the foot of the cross. By his stripes we are healed. Well, there's at least one person sitting here who was healed on a Sunday morning service outside the garden tomb in my presence. And you see, healing comes from the cross as well as forgiveness. And uh, it's all there in Isaiah. Sixthly, to get a bigger view of God. Oh, magnify the Lord with me means enlarge your understanding of God himself. Get a bigger view of God. And if there's one thing that the second half of Isaiah does, it gives you that bigger view of God the Holy One of Israel, the creator of the ends of the earth. Have you not known? Have you not heard? It's a big God we have and to magnify the Lord you need to get a big magnifying glass and see how big he is, how great he is. The nations are a drop in the bucket. There is nothing before him and if you wait on him you will renew your strength. You will rise up with wings like eagles. You've been asking me how my broken rib is while I'm teaching the Word of God. I'm totally unconscious of it. In between, I'm very conscious of it. But uh, somehow when you're talking about God and getting a big view of God, other things just do not matter and they don't come in at all. Well, that's Isaiah. I'm going to finish there. I'm finishing a bit early, but I'm going to finish there because that's enough for you to really get into this wonderful prophet who has condensed the whole Bible for us in one little book. Amen. You have been listening to David Pawson's Unlocking the Bible. Visual materials featured in this talk and other free resources like this can be found online at davidpawson.org.